0: we do need to think about the product itself, what it's been made from, is that gonna cause any negatives itself, such as cotton is a material that takes a lot of water. It's confusing for me, it must be confusing to consumers and everyone just wants to do the right thing.
1: Hello and welcome to Environmental Podcast Age of Plastic with me, Andrea Fox. I hope that you are doing okay right now and also that you've enjoyed the guests so far this series. So far, we've covered ethical finance with Becky O'Connor and spoken to the author of Is It Really Green? Everyday Eco Dilemmas Solved. That's Georgina Wilson, pal. So do go back and check out those if you haven't already. And if you like, well, I have. They were great. Thanks. I'd love it if you could leave a little review wherever you are listening right now. Also, if you want to come say hi... Let me know what you thought of an episode, maybe you've got an eco life hack or a guest or a topic that you'd love me to cover, just have a little chat. Um, Drop me an email, you can find out the details on my website, IamAndreaFox.co.uk. The Instagram for the podcast is Age of Plastic Podcast and you can find me on Twitter, Andrea underscore Fox. Now today I'm going to be joined by a plastic scientist recently we discovered that not only is plastic filling up our oceans but it's been found on everest at the highest point on earth marine scientist dr imogen napa who specializes in plastic pollution and has been called a plastic detective is joining me today and she was part of that study and countless other projects and research papers that you will definitely have seen in the press all surrounding plastic pollution on today's chat we dive into the middle classness of a plastic-free, zero-waste living, uh, what the future of washing machines might be, and her thoughts on plastic alternatives. But her sort of interest in plastic started off with something that I remember doing at school, a balloon release, and that was initially what sparked her journey to becoming a marine scientist.
0: I definitely think it was a, a driving force, and I think growing up in a seaside town was definitely a fuel to the fire as well. And like you said, it's balloon releases. I remember when we were younger, they used to be so common, especially seeing them on TV or for charity events. It was marked as a celebration, but with a lot of things in pollution, when we're doing something such as a balloon release, we don't often think of the the end impact it can have. And more often than not, it might land in a field or in the ocean and might be completely fine. But it only takes one balloon to potentially kill a dolphin or just to turn up on the beach. And they're not going to disappear for hundreds and hundreds of years, potentially thousands of years. No one actually knows how long it takes for plastic to completely break down because it's such a new material. And I think it was all of these unknowns that really lit a fire inside me to wanting to go into research to try and find those answers, trying to answer those unanswered questions. And for anyone who doesn't know you who's listening
1: to the podcast right now, you are a marine scientist specialising in plastic pollution. You've been called a plastic detective as well. And I think lots of, when we start talking about some of the research that you've done, I think a lot of people listening will be like, oh, I've seen that story because you've got loads of press about um, the research that you've done. But I wanted to start with the most recent one, uh, which sent you to the tallest point in earth to find microplastic there. Why did
0: you decide to head to Everest? So, truth be told, the closest I got to Everest, my lab in Plymouth, but <laughs> it didn't make getting those samples any less exciting. So uh, a National Geographic expedition team went over to Everest, uh, sponsored by Rolex as well. And it was a whole few months of just collecting data and science. And I was very lucky to be asked if I wanted to get any samples and who's going to turn down samples from Everest. And the samples had a proper VIP treatment where they were being helicoptered off the mountain. And it was another (laughs) different bit of science that we had to try and figure out what could climbers carry? How much could they take? What different samples could they collect? Where could they go? So it it was really exciting to help develop the science of that. But what we found was that we found microplastics almost near the top of Everest. So just below the summit at Everest balcony. And it shows that no matter where we are, we're leaving a trail of breadcrumbs, so a trail of microplastics wherever we go. So we're finding them in the depth of the ocean and now nearly to the tallest points on Earth. And even though the research is really exciting, it's also quite terrifying that is there anywhere left on Earth that hasn't been impacted by plastics.
1: Yeah, it's so true, and I wondered whether you were sort of expecting to find it, because once you look at these reports, I was like, well, yeah, loads of people try to go up Everest. What equipment are they taking? What is it made out of? Of, of, of uh, When you think about it, of course, but what, like you say, it is depressing and scary. Were you sort of expecting it, and what do you think this sort of research says to people?
0: I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, uh, but... You're a scientist, so you don't want to... <laughs> Yeah honestly I got the samples and getting the samples from Everest was like Christmas in the lab it was really exciting but I did think there was a possibility that I could go through all of these samples and find nothing and you know that would have been a really exciting result in itself that oh brilliant okay there's a few places on earth that haven't been impacted by microplastics but the sad thing was, is that we did find them nearly in every single sample. So in every snow sample, we found microplastics. In the stream samples, we didn't find them in every sample, but do you imagine a, a stream is quite quick and uh, there's a lot of new material being added to it from the glacier that's melting. And what was also really interesting is where the people were, the, the, whether they were relaxing or taking a break in their camps, that's where we found the most. So in Everest Base Camp, we are finding up to 30 microplastics per sample. And then as you go further away from the people, the microplastics drop off. So we're predicting that a large majority of these plastics have come off people. So our clothing, what they're wearing, their shoes, tents, ropes. And it's very similar to what we're going to be finding in the city as well. In the city, you're going to find loads of microplastics. And that's because we use plastics so much in our everyday life.
1: Yeah, definitely. And do you think this research is going to change any
0: behaviour for with people heading to Everest? Do you think it will make people more aware? I hope it makes all of us more aware that this is a, a problem that we really need to fix now. We're finding it literally everywhere. And for me, I considered Mount Everest as somewhere that's really pristine and remote. And I didn't think that it'd be so polluted with plastic as it is. Because we did find microplastics, but in the past it's been called the world's highest uh, junkyard because a lot of people that go up there, they dump off their kits, such as their oxygen canisters or their rubbish to make it lighter. But that kit is still gonna stay there. So it is kind of slowly turning into a large junkyard. So what we need to do is we need to make sure that whenever we use plastic or we buy it or we're manufacturing it, we think of that circular economy. So what's gonna happen to it? Where's it going to go and how can we make sure that it's useful for years to come rather than using something once like a carrier bag and then throwing it away?
1: Yeah, so we're going to get onto your studies with sort of biodegradable plastics in a minute. But I wanted to touch on the microbead study that you did. You found so many millions of these tiny microbeads in all of these face washes, which you even said yourself you used to use. And once you'd sort of put this research out there, that led to uh, the global ban on microbeads, didn't it?
0: It was a, a really exciting first research piece to do. and um, It was my first research piece in my PhD and I, I never expected the amount of interest that we got from it. And I think the interest came from just how shocking the results were. So we tested... I had over five facial scrub brands and they were all brands that you typically see in the supermarkets. And I used to look crazy going to get the replicates because I'd go into loads of different shops, like boots or supermarkets and collect loads of these facial scrubs, maybe 20 at a time and go to the checkout. And they, I think they just thought I was a clean freak or something. And then I spent hours in the lab, often into the dead of the night, extracting all of the microplastics. And it took so long because there were so many in there. And originally what I thought would be in there was something that was quite visible that I could literally see of my eyes. But when I was filtering it, it was almost like a like flower, like really fine. And when we measured the size, the size of a tiny, so it equated to each bottle potentially having nearly 3 million tiny microbeads in there. So on a squirt on your hand, when you're washing your face, there'd be potentially 10,000 microbeads Washing your face they go down the drain, potentially through the sewage treatment works and then into our ocean. And I don't know about you, um, but I don't want to be washing my face with plastic. And I never even considered it before. I didn't consider what that gritty bit would be. I thought maybe it's something natural like salt. So it took a lot of people by surprise that they were polluting the ocean potentially every day by washing their face without knowing. And it was really exciting to then see the legislation be changed from that.
1: Yeah, totally. And I wonder what your... I mean, obviously, we both said neither of us had really considered it. I just considered it must be, it'll be something ground up that's natural or like you say, sugar, because it was so fine, so small, like you say, you could barely see it. But um, why do you think the people who made it, who surely should have known better, you know, these big brands, that this would get through our sewage system and into the ocean? Why do you think they were sort of... I don't want to say get away with it for so long, but let's say, why did they get away with it for so long?
0: I can't remember the year of the the painting, but it came out maybe in 1980. I I truly don't think that they were out there to pollute the ocean and making it bad. I just think that they didn't think about it. And they didn't think about it from when they were designing the product. They probably thought, oh, plastic, that's quite abrasive. That'll get the skin off. And that's probably as far as it went. They didn't think, what's going to happen to this plastic? Is it going to make its way into the ocean? If it doesn't, where is it going to go? And then, of course, the products are so successful and change can take time. Unfortunately, it was a little bit longer than we, we hoped. But it does show that change can happen. And from really large industries, we just often have to helpfully push and work together rather than against. But I, I think it was just, not thinking from the beginning and thinking about that circular economy I mentioned
1: before. Yeah, totally. And I will get on to sort of what you think might be the future of plastic or how we get away from this um, plastic problem. But let's talk about uh, another research topic that you were involved in that lots of people will have seen. The plastic bags being taken out of the ocean after three years that are apparently biodegradable that can still hold a full bag of shopping. That was also some research that you
0: worked on, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, that was the first experiment that I set up in my PhD, and the, the last one that I collected the data. So it was a really long study. We basically got carrier bags that were biodegradable, compostable, and just normal carrier bags that didn't claim it had any biodegradability or compostability. And we put them in the soil, we submerged them in the ocean, and we left them hanging outside. And it was proper blue peter science. I just wanted to see what happened to them. We tested their tensile stress, so how quickly they would become brittle and break. We literally just looked at them and see how quickly they could be, you know, in our eyes vanishing or disintegrating. And what we found was after three years, all of the bags were still there in the soil, which is scary. And all of them could still hold a full bag of shopping. And for me, when I think of biodegradability and composting, I'll consider an apple that might disappear in weeks or, you know, even potentially months, but not years. And when bags are being labelled as biodegradable and compostable to the consumer, it can be quite confusing. And me myself, I used to see a biodegradable bag and think, oh, perfect. If it accidentally makes its way into the ocean, it's going to disappear. But our research is showing that actually we need to test things properly and have it black and white for the consumers to see on the product for how it's going to disappear. So biodegradable bags, some of them did disappear, sorry, compostable bags did disappear in the ocean, but some others didn't They were biodegradable. So it can get very confusing, but often they need to go in an industrial composter that has really high heat, really high moisture and specific conditions that you're potentially not going to get in the natural environment.
1: Yeah. Do you think that we need some more legislation about that, that something's only labelled biodegradable if it does sort of, I don't know, biodegrade under the most difficult conditions, which I believe is clean, fresh water in like a certain period of time? Do you think that would be helpful for
0: consumers and for the industry and obviously for the planet? Yeah, there definitely needs to be further legislation and standards. And that's something that we're calling for. And I know there's a lot of things bubbling under the surface of what's happening But again, it's all about collaboration and talking together and not making it competitive. We're all out there to try and make the ocean clean. And I get that making products have to be profitable and you have to make money and they have to sell, but we need to make sure that they're being tested in such a way that people understand it. It does what it says on the tin and it's a benefit rather than causing another negative. And a lot of great companies are out there making some amazing products and I can't wait to see where they go. But let's all make sure that we're singing from the same hymn sheets and that the standards are understandable to consumers, industry and government.
1: Yeah, you don't want to be going to one supermarket with a biodegradable bag and being like, well, this one I need to take to this place and this one will that it'd just be too confusing, wouldn't it? And I always wonder, like, what will replace all the plastic that we see on the shelves in the future? Like. Will we get to a point where we can use something that creates no harm, like seaweed or something, to create something that looks like plastic now? Would you say that is where you would like to see
0: us going? I think the future holds many possibilities. Uh, it's, you know, endless. Uh, but we do need to think about the product itself, what it's been made from. Is that going to cause any negatives itself, such as cotton is a material that takes a lot of water? So... It's not that environmentally friendly, even though it can be considered to be. So I think in the future, we just really need to dig deep and think, what is this product aimed to do? Where are we getting these materials and how are we going to dispose of it or use it again? And it's very simple questions. So we just need to keep reminding ourselves of. We just don't want to make more problems or more negative effects to the environment from making some quick
1: decisions i sometimes think like why can't we change all of this now but i suppose and i'm thinking of an example of twitter they're trying to change things to make the whole platform less harmful but they're doing things very slowly because they want to make sure it doesn't create problems for themselves in the future and that's exactly what you've just said in regards to plastic pollution and um i do sort of wonder you know if we need to find a way to like use waste products rather than like take all the seaweed out of the sea or you know making plastics out of starch and all this kind of stuff that I've I've read about like when we have food poverty around the world that's not necessarily going to be the best the best sort of
0: option would you say I think it's very confusing and it's confusing for me it must be confusing to consumers and everyone just wants to do the right thing Going back to biodegradable plastics, I'm sure there is a future for them and it's already showing that they can be successful, but we need to think where they could be successful. For example, a football stadium where you have biodegradable cups, you could collect all of those cups and make sure that they go all to the industrial composter. But for Joe Blogs down the street, that's got a biodegradable bag that has to go into an industrial composter. We don't have one in Plymouth. So how are we meant to get it there? Are we meant to send it? Uh, he can't recycle it, or so they can't recycle it. So they just put it in the bin, then it might potentially act like just normal plastic. So there's all of these questions that we just have to keep answering ourselves. And that's where consumers, industry and government and research all has to talk together because everyone's got their different needs and expertise. And it's only by talking together that we'll be able to figure out the solutions.
1: Yeah, that's so true. And I think when it comes to the circular economy, I wonder whether at some point, you know, you go to the shop and buy those face washes, which now, thanks to you, don't contain microbeads. Um, but with the outer casing, like, will there be a time where we can just take it back, you know, drop it in something at Boots and instead of, you know, TerraCycle, which is brilliant, getting to like downgraded into something else, it will be turned into another face wash bottle, yep. possibly. Who
0: knows? And a lot of it is going to be changing our own behaviour, Uh, Me, myself, I forget my bags when I go shopping and I feel incredibly stupid. So it's just remembering myself that every day when I go out, if I'm going to go shopping, I need to take my bag. And it's just little behaviour changes like that that everyone goes through that we just need to remind ourselves. And that's the same for industry and government about how we can try and improve the environment for the future. And there's some amazing schemes bubbling up, but we have to make sure that they are accessible to everyone. Uh, what often is n- not annoying but quite, I guess, irritating for me is that being plastic-free can sometimes be quite a middle-class thing, where people that have the time, the money, the opportunity to go to a plastic-free shop, spend more money on these products, have more time, even doing the research, is not going to be the same as someone that's got a large family that's on the, you know, a low income. But still wants to be environmental, so we need to make sure that we're not judging each other. Everyone's on their own plastic journey or environmental journey to be better. But it's what you can do at that time to try and make yourself better for the environment, and just not have any guilt.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I've said it when I first started the podcast. I haven't said it in a while, but you can only do as much as you can. Like we are all time poor, and we're currently speaking in. Uh, lockdown three I believe the rules are you're only supposed to leave the house once a day like it, it, you can't it is not possible for everyone to just leave the house and be like I'm going to go to my zero waste shop that
0: is my one time I will
1: leave the house it's just it's not feasible for everyone is it
0: Look, exactly and I actually started my research for from The beginning of my PhD thinking that plastic was evil, like, oh, it's evil, it's not going to disappear, it's polluting our beaches, look at our planets. But actually, plastic is an amazing material. It was only made 100 years ago. It's been so successful that we make almost anything out of plastic now. To prove a point, the t-shirt I'm wearing is actually plastic. But it's a victim of its own success. So it's so durable, it's cheap, it can be made into so many products is why it's becoming so polluted into the environment, because we're making so much of it. And the best way to be environmental is to use what you already have. So can you fix clothes rather than going and buying new clothes? Don't think that you need to go and buy loads of new wear that's glass, just use the ones that you have. Uh, And it's often just reminding ourselves that being environmental is just using what you have.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned your lovely top there. And you've mentioned cotton. So let's get on to the other research project, um, which I'm really interested in, which is all to do with microfibers that come off of our clothes. Um, I never really understood why, because I use a guppy bag for my sort of non natural fibre clothes now. I've never kind of understood why we can't make washing machines with a filter that stops all these microfibers getting into the ocean.
0: So we did some initial research, gosh, how many years ago now? Three years ago? All of the years are blowing into one, but so many years (laughs) ago, and we wanted to test different fabrics that we typically wear to see how many fibres come off. And the scary result that we found was that for a typical wash that we typically do in the UK, up to 700,000 fibres could come off our clothes every time we wash them, potentially go down the drain, through the sewage treatment works, and then into our ocean. And that is a problem because most of our clothes made out of plastic, about 60% of the clothes that we buy, if not more, especially with the development of fast fashion. Then if you imagine your street, a town, a city, a country, the whole world washing their clothes, that's a huge proportion of fibres potentially making their way into the marine environment or even just in, in the environment as a whole. And then it was quite a scary paper that we did looking at how easy it could be just pollute the ocean from just day-to-day tasks that we do on on an average week. So then we did another research paper looking at different inventions. We tested things like the guppy bag, the corable, other inventions that go into washing machines. And we found that there was a large variability on how successful they were, but they were capturing fibers. We found that the ones that went in the drums, like the guppy bag or a mesh bag that you'd put your clothes into, wasn't great at capturing the fibers but it was good at mitigating them however the most successful products itself were external inventions that would go into the washing machine or outside the washing machine and it would often use a centrifugal force or a mesh to capture the fibers you'd then pick up the fibers and put them in the bin so it probably could be a really effective way of the future of washing our clothes but we need to also then consider how clothes are made and whether we could make them in such a way that they shed less. It's it's never an easy one quick fix answer. There's a lot of different answers that we need to consider. Well, this is going to be a difficult
1: next question then, because I was going to say, what would you like to see change? But I guess there's quite a quite a few things that you'd like to see us bring into like the current way that we do everything in a way.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not sure how easily I can answer it, but I often think education is, education is the root of solving everything. And if people aren't aware of what they're doing, how they can, can they make a change? And that's again, for government, industry, consumers, you and me. Something that I always remember is I was doing an outreach events and uh, quite a blokey guy came up to me to look at these microbeads. And he was like, oh, I use this product. And I was like, oh, well, we did some research. We found that three million could be in one bottle. And he looks at me absolutely shocked, like his jaw dropped to the floor. And he said, at this time, I'm never gonna use this product again. I honestly had no idea. Uh, Thank you so much for for telling me. And even though it was just one person, but that one person could have told his streets, his family, and it spreads like wildfire. So if I could change anything, I would make it compulsory in schools that we need to learn more about environmental matters and figure out a way together of how we can try and teach the world of how we can be better
1: ourselves that's such a good answer because like you say it's it's a wicked problem, climate change even the plastic pollution, which is just one part of it is 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 like you say so complex um and i I sometimes wonder whether like a ban on virgin plastic would be a good idea because we've seen some of the stats from previous guest um everyday plastic that we're just not really using the stuff that we're putting in our recycling bin. So what are your sort of thoughts on that? Do you think that would be a good one sort of element that would be helpful? I guess we could definitely limit
0: it. Um, often when you recycle something, it could be made into a, a polymer that then can't be recycled again. So it's that circular economy is almost just a loop. It could be recycled once and then that's it. Uh, we do make a lot of plastic, And a lot of that is unnecessary, but a lot of that is necessary. And I think COVID has really shown how much we do rely on plastic, especially in terms of healthcare and food packaging and just making things safe. Once we get out of this pandemic, we can get more into what is normal. Then we can start to limit our plastic use again. But it's just making sure that we use it for things that's important and it's justified rather than a carrier bag when you go shopping to then just chuck in the bin afterwards. Yeah, you said that plastic is a brilliant material and it's something
1: that we always ask our guests for their favourite plastic item because I completely agree and I always say that, like the medical side of things is just one of those places where we we couldn't really do without it. It's made such uh, amazing changes. Um, And I know it's not your specialisation as a scientist, but as you did bring up COVID-19, what do you think the pandemic um, and obviously the use of single-use PPE and all this kind of stuff, do you think that sort of put climate issues and plastic pollution on the back burner for people?
0: In a way, yes. And I can completely understand that people have other priorities and other needs that they need to address uh, it's definitely not been easy and it's been tough for a lot of people um with people getting ill or just being cautious and unaware of what the future is going to hold and then suddenly we're being told to wear masks and gloves and, and it's scary and people want to protect their own health so it's definitely probably not in the forefront of the news and in people's minds anymore just as we try and figure out what this this scary beast is because there's, there's so many unknowns but as we start to come out of it then hopefully it's shown us that how useful plastic is but again we only use it for things that are necessary so hopefully it'll be another light to the fire of environmental issues
1: Yeah, completely. I think that's a really good point. Really good point. Like you say, let's get out of the pandemic first. (laughs) Like we only have so much bandwidth for so much stuff. Let's concentrate on one thing at a time. But um, it would—I'd love to see us sort of make a um, sort of green changes so that when the economy comes back, things could be better than it was before this pandemic. But I suppose we shall wait and see, won't we?
0: (laughs) I think that legislations need to be quicker, and we need to be a bit more boisterous with the changes that we're making, but making sure it doesn't affect anyone. Um, I know the straw ban, just for an example, with straws being banned uh, in England or across the UK, or even worldwide in some places, is a really good initiative because we don't need a straw. And if you want a straw, you can get a reusable one, but we need to make sure we're not segregating members of society. So my brother's disabled and needs a straw to drink. So when we go out, we just need to make sure that we have a straw for him. So it's it's making sure that everything is accessible and required for the people that need it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Accessibility is, yeah, such a huge issue. And yeah, definitely one of the things that I need to be thinking about more on this podcast, for example. But um, we always ask our guests two very important questions and we've kind of touched on one of them already. Plastic is a good material, we're just using it in the wrong way. So are there any sort of items in your life that you are thankful for plastic? I imagine maybe there might be quite a bit in the research lab.
0: Yeah, we use a lot of plastic in the research lab. Um, I think people would be quite surprised of how much plastic researchers use plastic. But definitely trying to be more conscious in the lab and use more things are like glass and um plastic free and it is doable um but something that else i don't go anywhere without even though i forgot them for this interview with the, the cord is my headphones I, I literally walk to work with my headphones i've got them on every single day I, I honestly just could not live without music in my life so my headphones are the biggest plastic item that i have
1: 100% uh, my um, phone has broken and I used to be the same as you everywhere I went podcasts, music um, and now when I plug my headphones in it just blares out of the phone for some reason oh. uh, so I've, I feel and I'm really really missing it so yeah completely music do you listen to a lot of music when you're in the research lab oh
0: there's music on from when I arrive to when I leave to walking home it's A lot of things in research are quite monotonous, just doing them again and again and again. So having a good playlist will kill the time. Yeah, definitely. I think you've
1: said you had to uh, watch the washing machines quite a lot. Literally hours. So
0: even though I loved the research and it was fun to do, my friends in the office make fun of me because I would just crawl back downstairs to have coffee and crawl back up. I was just watching this washing machine for 200 hours, if not more in total. and it's as boring as it sounds, but the research was uh, very interesting. So it was worth it.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And 200 hours of your favourite music at the same time. Exactly. I have some amazing playlists now. So
1: <laughs> Excellent. And oh, we always um, ask, our guests one final question as well. Who would you say is your environmental hero?
0: Oh, it's such a cliche. It's absolutely cliche. But David Attenborough, um, I was lucky enough to meet him a few years ago. And he is exactly as you wish you would be. They say you don't meet your heroes, um, but as he turned around, I happened to be in his his eyesight and I just basically just fumbled and said, ah, you've been my hero for years, I sent you a letter and he replied. And he is exactly like you'd hope David Attenborough to be. A lot smaller than you think, but he's just so passionate, so happy and he's a, an absolute hero to the environmental sector.
1: It's amazing that's so nice did you get to chat to him for very long then or did he just Uh, say hi and keep moving
0: it felt like hours but it probably was more like two minutes but it's something that I'll always remember
1: oh Dr Imogen Napa thank you so much for chatting to me for the Age of Plastic podcast oh it's
0: been my pleasure thank you so much
1: An actual real-life, lesser-spotted or common garden David Attenborough on the podcast. That's probably as close as I'm going to get uh, to interviewing him on this podcast. Oh, well, it was such a pleasure to chat to Imogen Napper for the podcast. So glad we found some time. She was busy moving house. Um, If you want to keep up with Imogen's many wash cycles and her future scientific studies, looking into the source of plastic and the effects of COVID-19, or just keep up to date with her work and ask her to share her music playlists, then her website is imogen-napper.com. And I just want to flag, I think I mentioned the economy is like separate to our health during this chat. I do kind of think that they are the same thing and... I am reading a brilliant book at the moment, which I wanted to recommend, called Kate Raworth's Donor Economics, which delves into this a little bit more if, like me, you want to make your brain hurt before you go to bed of an evening. I must also share my music playlists with you. I mean, I have been working music radio forever, so maybe I'll link to those in the show notes at some point. On to today's eco life hack. We did mention phones and listening to music. I am in need of a new phone, as I mentioned, that's not working. It is a refurbed one off the internet ebay about two years old i always recycle mine anyway i normally use envirophone this time around though i went with reboxed and they sort out the whole thing depending on the state of your current phone you can trade it in and get cash off a refurbed phone reboxed.co is the place to head if you want to check them out next time i'm talking refilling your life zero waste and how it could be more accessible by making it delivered i'll be chatting to the women behind charlie with two r's next time on the age of plastic podcast until then remember hands face space